because, you know, in the work that we do, we may not be scientists, but in order to guide that proposed study down the right path, we need to actually understand the concepts and conceptualize it. So I'm learning a lot. Yeah. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Health Careers with Dr. Martin, a podcast show that pulls back the curtain on what a career in health and wellness is really like. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Martin. If you're interested in being at the forefront of the latest research that's being performed or being developed, the latest clinical studies for patients that are being thought of, especially with uh, the technology and advances in medicine that are going on, then this career, this profession may be for you. Today, we're going to talk with Marilyn Eshikeno, a wonderful guest who's really passionate about her job and very knowledgeable about it as well, a real expert in this field. And she is an IRB manager. And you're going to learn how important and interesting and vital that is to getting research done the right way, but also learning about what the newest and latest thinking is in research out there. So let's jump into it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another great episode on Health Careers with Dr. Martin. I have the pleasure of having Marilyn Eshikena with me. Welcome, Marilyn. How are you doing? Thanks, Dr. Martin. I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. You know, we're recording this just as the new year has started. And so I'm just so happy that we got you on this podcast. So I really want to start off with some real quick questions, kind of get into things these kind of quick hit questions, if as we talked about before. So, Marilyn, give me a quick bio. You know, the highlights of what you think that people should know about you. Well, my name is Marilyn, last name is Shikina. Born and raised in Nigeria, I moved to the UK for my undergraduate degree. I went to Sheffield University where I studied biomedical science. I then moved to New York, to Columbia University, got my master's in bioethics. Right after that, I started working at Mount Sinai doing IRB work, which we'll get into later. And I've been doing that since five years now. And what exactly is your job title? And what do you do? At Mount Sinai, my job title is IRB manager. And I manage IRB analysts and contribute to the function of the IRB office. Okay, we'll get into that a little bit later on. In your work, how do you help people? We help people, the, our immediate customers, as it were, are researchers, biomedical researchers. We help them think about the studies that they're doing, proposing to do. We help them navigate the regulatory waters because we are the experts. And so we provide that help to them. But down the line, we are helping patients who benefit from these different biomedical research studies, either immediately through clinical trials that may benefit them, or down the line through what we learn about their different conditions. And what is the best part of your profession in a sentence or two? Contributing to the growth of science in medicine. On the forefront there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what is the least favorite part of your profession? Reading. It's a lot of reading. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And misconceptions people have about your profession that we hinder research. There's a lot of paperwork that goes into what people need to give to us. And so some people may take that as 
not having so much freedom to start their work when they want to start it. So there is that misconception about hindering research. That's awesome, Marilyn. Thank you for those answers to those quick hit questions. That we did that in under three minutes. Very nice. All right, but I really want to get to the meat now, Marilyn. You told me that you're an IRB manager. What exactly is that? How is your day like? Okay. So an IRB manager, I think it's best for me to talk to you about the IRB piece. The manager piece is management, right? The IRB piece actually speaks to what I do day in, day out. So we receive proposals from biomedical researchers at Mount Sinai. And these are, you know, research proposals either to do a clinical trial on a new experimental drug, new experimental device, or observational, trying to figure out what's going on in a certain condition in different parts of the body. They write it up, they submit it to us, we read what they've given to us, and then we try to figure out if what they plan to do is possible under the confines of the regulations that govern what we do, if there are any ethical, moral issues. We think we think very 100% on the fore of our minds at the subjects, the patients, the people who will be volunteering their time, their samples, their bodies. It's a scientist learning about this. So we're thinking about them making sure that there's no part of this project or these projects that are taking unfair advantage um, of these patients. So that's what we do day in, day out. That's a, you know, that accounts for, I would say, 95% of our job. The rest of it is educating these researchers as well through different outreach programs, talking to them about here's what to think about when you try when you want to plan projects in the future. Or they call us for consults. I'm thinking of putting something together. What do you think? So that would account for the other 5%. In a very general sense, there's two types of research. You can In medicine, you can do clinical and basic research or bench research. Are you just focusing on clinical research or do you also look at studies on basic science as well? We only do clinical research. Got it. And how you, you said you vet all these studies that come through other researchers in Mount Sinai. How many research studies are you reviewing a year? So in our portfolio, we have 5,000 active projects every year that we review. So there's literally 5,000 researchers that are sent to the IRB a year? So 5,000 projects. There are researchers that have wide portfolios. And so one researcher may account for maybe 20 something of those 5,000, but individual in um, unique projects, we have 5,000 active. How many per month do you usually get? Per month, I would say anywhere between 250 and 300. So you actually read literally hundreds of proposals a month. Yes. Yes. In our office. Yes. That is busy. (laughs) And when you're doing this reading, who are you working with? Are you just working with the person that submitted that study? Are you working with other, who else are you working with when you're reading the proposal from, from they say this uh, researcher? So for the most part, we're working with that team. So it's usually a team. Sometimes depending on the project, you may just have one researcher. So we're working that person, but in general, working with the team, which may include the PI who's the lead investigator. Most times we're speaking directly, at least at first with their research coordinator who was hired to interface with our office, right? But then when sometimes we may need the PI's input because the PI is the one who knows exactly what's going on, we may talk to other co-investigators if we need clarification. So for the most part, that's who we're working with. But there are times when we have to work with the FDA directly. We have to call them 
Oh, but really? We have questions, yes, because some of the studies that we see aren't just studies that Mount Sinai researchers have put together. We may be working on a multi-center study, a nat- wide national study where we aren't responsible for, and it has FDA, it needs FDA oversight. So we may work with them on that, uh, with questions that we may have. We may work with other institutions as well outside of Mount Sinai. And then back to home within Mount Sinai, we may have to work with other research administration offices. That's what we call them. So, for example, if a study is using experimental medication that hasn't been approved by the FDA, we're going to work with this department that's called Investigational Drug Services or Research Pharmacy, um, since they will be responsible for getting that experimental drug and dispensing it to the study team, right? So we want to make sure that all that piece is done properly. It's 2020, right? So there's a lot of research and a lot of things being done with software and apps and, you know, IT. The world of IT is fully ingrained in medicine and science. So we have an information security department. They deal with the security of data, making sure that, right. you, know, you know, data or any of this stuff doesn't get hacked into. So we work with, with them too very closely, depending on what the study's doing. Now, as you're an RIB manager for Mount Sinai, which is a major academic institution based in New York, you're dealing with hundreds of different studies regularly every month. I presume in 2020, you probably saw a huge influx of COVID coronavirus-related research. Definitely. What percentage of studies were COVID-related in 2020 for you guys? Probably anywhere between 30% and 40%. So at the peak of COVID, so between March and June, it probably accounted for well over 50% of our research portfolio. But then in the summer and then now it's 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 still coming in, but it's dropped. And so I would say now it's maybe about 30%. But altogether, if we're taking it as a chunk, I'll put it somewhere between 30 and 40%. Of the so you as as your as a as a department and division, you are really at the forefront of a lot of research that's out there. What people are thinking about, what they think they want to test. Mm-hmm. and trial, you're really kind of getting the researcher's perspective of what they want, the what they think is going on out there and how they exactly. want to test yes. it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. How do you feel about that? That was one of the things that, like, it was a reminder of why I love what I do so much, which is getting, like, first look at what, where science is going, where the research is I like that, the first going. look. Getting that first look before it's even tried before the experiment right. actually happens we get it may not even work yeah exactly but at least you're at least you're getting the idea like yes. you're like oh wow i never thought about that they're trying to test this yes. aspect of this disease exactly you exactly know, and especially with the pandemic going on I'm, I'm this must be very intellectually stimulating and exciting yeah for sure oh so much like i i've I, i've taken to Besides the work that we've been getting about COVID, I've taken to just daily checking in on clinicaltrials.gov, which is where any research that's happening, clinical trials get posted publicly. And so I go on there to see what other institutions, both national and internationally, are doing regarding COVID, right? To see, oh, are we doing that as well? Oh, I haven't heard of this. So it is, <laughs> it is really interesting. Yeah. And learning about because, you know, in the work that we do, we may not be scientists, but in order to guide that proposed study down the right path, we need to actually understand the concepts. 
yes. and conceptualize it. So I'm learning a lot. Yeah. So you even have to understand it as well. Yes. To to make a educated decision of whether exactly. this study meets certain criteria to get through IRB. Exactly. Right? And by the way, I'm not sure if we did it, but what does IRB stand for? Yes, we did not. Thank you for that. It's Institutional Review Board. Okay. And just to give everybody a sense, an IRB is at every academic institution in this country that wants to do research, correct? Yes, yes, exactly. So either you have one as a department in your institution or you pay for an external IRB to use them as your IRB. But in order to do research, you need to have an IRB that you're affiliated with. Got it. That involves patients or live living things, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. And just to, I want to, just to speak a little bit on that, the IRB has been mandated by the government for any institution that's going to receive federal dollars to do research. You must follow their regulations, which includes submitting to an IRB and having an IRB approve your work. But there are, you know, private, like you in private practice, for example, if you wanted to do research looking through patients' data to see some kind of trend, you're not receiving federal dollars. We can go ahead and do that without coming to us first. Got it. Got it. Okay. What is your typical day like, Marilyn? Typical day now with COVID begins at 8.30. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Did it start differently before that? Yeah, it started 30 minutes later. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. They got but, you captured by video. So, you know, they got locked exactly, you down. Exactly. Exactly. But we start with a high level management meeting, which I think is very important for us to establish the day. And usually there may be things that have come up uh, the night before that need to be discussed in terms of projects. We may have highly sensitive projects. Any projects that's funded by the NIH is highly sensitive because their process is different. And so by the time they come to us, they need it yesterday. So we want to know any of those that we have, any problematic projects, any projects that are hard uh, for us to conceptualize and want to talk about it together. But then the rest of the day is spent as a manager. I'm overseeing the work of my people. So, so many times they have questions as they're reviewing these projects. So they, the analysts do the reviews. So I'll help them with that. I may have meeting schedules to talk to study teams to provide consults as they work on putting their research together. Many times we may have questions for the study teams based on what they've submitted. So we get on the phone because that's the quickest way to understand what's going on. So we do that as well. And then, you know, a small part of my day is spent looking at the metrics and the data of what we're doing all the time. You mentioned as a misconception people have about your career is that there's this misconception that IRB and their managers hinder research. Yes. Why do people get that that misconception? And why is that a misconception? A misconception. Okay. So I believe that it's come about because we're an office, right? And we, we get audited. So we need to have paperwork and records kept in a certain way. So a researcher who just wants to get their work off the ground just wants to tell you, here's what I'm doing. Is it fine to do or not? But then we're asking them, you need to fill out this form. You need to answer these questions. You need to provide us with XYZ information. We need your CV. We need you to do this course. We need to make sure you're training this. And so the time that it takes, and mind you, you know, 
people who do clinical research also have clinical work that they that's taking their time, right? Or other things that they're doing. So research isn't 100% of their time. And so they're juggling all of that with the IRB requirements that they need to meet. They can't meet it in the time when they would like. And the IRB can't move forward with us reviewing and approving their proposed research until we get that. So it takes long for them, for us to get to that point because of that. And so many people actually, it's sad to say, I have met a few researchers, especially if they don't have any help in terms of hiring a person to just interface with the IRB, end up, if they think that it's not worth it, they just abandon the research and they don't do it, right? And so- Even if they have a great idea. Exactly, exactly. So they don't do it because they're like, I don't, you know, I can't, I can't figure this out. And so that's, that's where that misconception is coming from. But what we do, what we've been doing in our office, and I've been trying to do when we speak to researchers, we're collaborators in the research process. You're an expert in what you do. You're an expert in the idea that you have. You're very smart in that. We are the expert in regulation. And so we want to work together. If you need help, just ask us, just talk to us, mm-hmm. as opposed to just assuming. And, and you know, it's um, it's oral tradition, word of mouth. People yeah. hear that the IRB is difficult. And so mm. they come, they approach us with that outlook. And so the moment you say, actually, can you change this? It becomes, oh, they, you know, it started again. They're not going to make this. They're <laughs> not going to let me go through. Um, but we keep, we try and customer service is at the forefront in our office of what we do, right? We have three tenets that govern us, accuracy, customer service, and timeliness. And I think customer service and timeliness are both linked because the quicker we're able to produce to the researchers, the, the better they see us, the better light they see us. And they say, okay, it's not, it's, not, it's not too bad, right? I can do this again. So the next time they have a great idea, they don't have to think, oh, IRB, I have to go through them. How can I do this without coming through IRB? Let me find uh-huh. a workaround, around, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, these regulations from the government or other governing bodies like the FDA are put in place, right, to ensure those three tenants. Yes. And therefore... When the research does come out, the research is reliable. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Which is the whole point, right? We don't want to be doing studies that aren't reliable, which is why I think it's great that we're talking because with the whole, right now, this is January, early January of 2021. Yes. And the vaccines yes. are just coming out. Yes. And I would presume that you've seen the research on those vaccines. A little bit. Yes. A little bit. And so if someone like you or even me or anybody in the scientific community research reviews it, they want to make sure that these vaccine trials went through the appropriate IRB steps. Exactly. Yes. Yes. You know? And yeah. And, and, and that, you know, giving vigorous attention and thoroughness in our review enforces that. Because when you say, when someone sees something and they say this was reviewed by an IRB, that carries a lot of weight. You uh-huh. shouldn't need to dig the down. Gold the gold standard. Yes, exactly. IRB reviewed this. I trust it. And so in order for that to continue being the case, we as the IRB need to make sure that we're being thorough enough, that we're knowledgeable, that we're getting all the information and that we are only approving research that meets certain standards. I love this. I'm, I'm learning stuff too. Oh, this is great. <laughs> Marilyn, uh, can you tell me what is your most rewarding part of your job and some examples? Probably my first year in this field, we talked about a study and eventually approved it that had to do with trachea transplant. 
And so in... What type of transplant? Trachea. Oh, trachea. Yeah, like trachea. in your throat. Got it. Yes, in your throat. Sorry. Yes, I say trachea. Um, trachea, <laughs> tra- trachea. Okay. And so, in doing, in reading up about that, I realized that that was going to be the first time there would be that kind of transplant using the method that they were going to use. And I thought, wow, you know, this is great. This is amazing to be in a room, have access to this information seeing that this is the first time and we are at the forefront of doing this first in humans. And we, of course, being that this is the first time, we don't really have the legal term B, like in, in case law, there's no precedence for us to go to, to look to, to see how is this done. And so we as smart people who know the regulations and who are trained to think about ethical and moral dilemmas we're thinking about this novel case or this novel proposal in this way. And, and I think that, that that was when it hit me for the first time, really, the kind of impact uh, that this work has in uh, patient care and helping just humanity in general with things that come up. I learned very recently that for you know big children, boys especially, who have cancer and have to go through cancer treatment, especially mm-hmm. radiation, there's yeah, the yeah. risk, there's the risk of impotency of, you know, not being ever able to be fertile. But then we learned that there is research that's in the early stages, trying to grow sperm in a dish from testicular tissue, right? And so, th- you know, that's, that's something that's currently being done and it was brought to our attention and we, you know, we've done a little bit of consult and working on that. That was another, like just seeing, hearing about the direct impact on, you know, the life, the, the future impact that it will have on the life of a five-year-old boy who, yeah. probably, you know, goes through chemo or, you know, radiation therapy, gets healed of his, you know, goes into remission. But then without this, without future advancement in science, we'll probably go through his his life without being able to, you know, fertilize an egg to then have a baby. And, you know, he probably wants that. And so science is at the point where we're trying to make that happen for this five-year-old boy down the line and many five-year-old boys, many 10-year-old boys, prepubescent boys. So I think that's fascinating. And certainly with COVID right now, we, it's interesting, my friend had sent me an article that had mentioned Mount Sinai in the early stages, talking about how they found COVID antibodies in breast milk. And she sent that to me and I was like, oh, I worked on that. I, I reviewed that study. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You can so. talk to me first, you know, uh, <laughs> off the record, off the record, but you know. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And, you know, you said you don't have to do a lot of reading. In your profession? Yes, you do. You do. Is that like almost burdensome? Yes. So I, I'm not a reader. I'm a slow reader and I, I enjoy writing. And I realized early on that I'm not a voracious reader. And so that can get burdensome because it's not leisure reading. It's serious stuff. And uh-huh. it's, um, it's critical reading because you're reading to both understand and find any holes and gaps that need to be filled. And so you need to be alert. So, you know, in, in one day, if you've read six, seven protocols, that's a lot. And by the time you open the eighth one, it's like, uh, I don't know. 
<laughs> I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> but that's why, you know, it's important to know what time of day you're best alert, what time of day you're able to take in all this information. And then, you know, we intersperse it with different things when you have a meeting with someone, right? Mm-hmm. If, if I call you up to tell me about your research, it's different from me reading what you've written down to me. And I would say another part of the reading, too, is people and their different writing styles, right? Not everyone is as eloquent in writing. And so that can also pose a challenge in trying to figure out what people are trying to say. Got it. Would you say your work-life balance is pretty good, though, overall, or or not, or something in between? I would say something in between, and that's a personal choice. Yeah. This, I think this field that I'm in makes for excellent work-life balance, but I enjoy what I do. And so I put in the extra time, not out of necessity, but just because I enjoy it. But, you know, I don't have to work on the weekends. I have set hours for work. Nine to five is our our business hours. So I do do love it. And I do think that it has great work-life balance. And especially the kind of work that we do can be done anywhere. You don't have to be tied to one specific location. Yeah, you told me you used to go into the office every day until March, and then you haven't been to the office since March of 2020. Exactly, yes. And now we're in January of 2021. Wow. Exactly, yeah. Thank goodness for Zoom and (laughs) internet connection. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Do you recommend this career to students? And if so, what kind of students do you think best flourish in this type of career that you're doing as an IRB manager? I definitely recommend this because I'm, I'm biased. I'm in it. I love it. And so I recommend it, right? Yes. I think if you are a curious person, curious about the workings, the inner workings of biomedical science, biomedical medicine, how the things that we use in medicine and science come to be, this is perfect for you. Because like I said, you get first look and you need that curious mind. That's what helps with the numbness of reading and reading. If you're Mm -hmm. curious, each thing you're reading is different from the other. And so that interest is what fuels you to keep going when you open a new one and they're saying something different. Oh, I want to, what is this? I want to know what what this is and learn about it. So if you are curious, interested in the inner workings of science, for me, I was both those things, but I didn't want to be a researcher myself and confine myself to one area of interest. So I found that this was a great fit for me because I'm exposed to all aspects, cancer, COVID, infectious diseases, HIV, you know, even pain management using the the VR technology, right? VR? Oh, visual. um, Yeah, virtual reality. Virtual reality, yeah. Yes, with the glasses. Yeah, pain management, anxiety anxiety management. There's the um, the first game to treat ADHD was approved by the FDA this past year. So you're exposed to all kinds of things in the, in, in the field of science and medicine. So I think if, if all those things interest you, then this is where you should be. And in, in some way also uh, working on the IRB, you are the gatekeeper of the quality of researcher of research that comes in and through the IRB. Yes, exactly. You know, and, and eventually what gets out to the public. Yes, exactly. Got it. What do you think the future is for your profession as an IRB manager? So it's interesting. 
interesting, that question. And since you asked me the first time, I've been pondering on it. It's a mixed bag. There are people who think that we're not here to stay because there are people who are for self-regulation, meaning Mm -hmm. having the researchers regulate themselves, having the researchers do what the IRB essentially is doing. But I think the opposite. And I've, I've, I've checked my biases and I, I do think that this is maybe a little bit in it, but I think that this field is here to stay and it will keep growing. And the reason I say this is if we look at the history of regulation of science and, and medical research, we've come a long way. Yeah. This whole body was put in place because of all the missteps that happened when researchers were right. pretty much regulating themselves, right? Yeah. And that's not to say anyone goes out with the intent of doing um, unethical research. But the truth is, when you are wearing many hats, you drop the ball on one or the other. And if you're a researcher, you want to advance science and research. But many times you may forget the people who are facilitating that, which is your your patients who you're doing the research on, the the volunteers, all those people. That's what our office is here to protect at Mount Sinai, our department is actually called the Program for the Protection of Human Subjects. That's what we do. That's what we're there to do. So we are the expert in that. The more technology grows, the more science grows, the more there's medical advancement, there will be more interesting, ethically ambiguous research coming out in the forefront. And that's more work for us and more, you know, the more there will be need for people like us who are experts in this topic to weigh in. And, and regulate. So I do I, I do think that we're here to stay. You were born and raised in Nigeria. Yes. But you went to college at the UK. Yes. When you were in your, you know, high school or college, were you thinking about going into an area like like being an IRB manager or the area of research? Was this on your mind? No, not at all. So I actually it's interesting. I applied to my undergraduate university to study dentistry. Oh. My mom's a dentist. I grew up around that. And, you know, where, growing up in Nigeria and going to high school there, if you're smart and you're, in the, you're interested in the sciences, everyone yeah. says, go be a doctor, go study yeah. medicine. And I didn't want to do that, but my mom's a dentist. So I said, I'll do that instead. It's different, right? It's not medicine, which everyone's saying I should do. So I'm going to do something different, which is dentistry. Yeah. So I applied to that. I didn't get in. But then they said, hey, there's this course by medical science, which you might be interested in. We can give that to you. And then in a year, you can reapply for dentistry and probably have a better chance of getting in. So I took that course and went, started studying that course with the intention of switching gears to dentistry. What was the name of that course? Biomedical science. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So you take this biomedical science. What happened? Yeah. So... I was exposed to that and I started, you know, after my first semester, I said, do I, why do I want to do dentistry again? I actually, I have no answer for why I want to do this. In that first year, we had a career session where they brought in some alumni of our program to talk about what they're doing right now. Most people went on to study medicine. Some people did dentistry. Some people were researchers. Some people actually actually went out of the field and were in the banking sector and doing other work there. But there was this one girl who worked for pharma. She worked in a pharmaceutical, at a a pharmaceutical firm. And she did, she said what she did was regulatory affairs. 
And she explained it. And I said, that sounds interesting. I want to do that. What is that? So I went away and I did my research. Um, and that's how I found out about bioethics as a concept, as a field of study. And so the, my, I, I, my degree in the UK was for three years. So after that first year learning about this, I spent my last two years just working towards getting myself ready for a master's in bioethics and eventually getting into this field. Taking that course, hearing from that one person, learning more about it, and then it just launched you into this whole area of research and, and the regulations of such. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Reflecting back, would, would you have done anything differently? No. No. <laughs> no, no, actually. I, no, I wouldn't have. I think every, every all the decisions and all the steps that were made brought me here right now. And so I, don't, I wouldn't have done anything differently. What do you tell a student, like a high school student or a college student, about you know, actionable advice that you could give them? Is there anything that you could say to them with what you know, reflecting back on, on what you're doing now and, and how you got there? I would say talk to people whose jobs sound interesting to you and start doing that early because then you get firsthand accounts of what it's like. You get, and you know, you're... Your podcast, Dr. Martin, I think is highly valuable. And I wish something like this existed because it's very easy to confine ourselves to the careers that we hear about all the time. I want to be a doctor because you know yeah. what doctors do. I or a nurse. A nurse. Yep. Yeah, not exactly. to say that's not important. It's just no, that of course. it seems very um, tunnel vision very yes. early on. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And so I think exposing yourself early on to all the different things that people do in this big field of medicine and science will help you start to, you know, rethink what you want to do. Think about the things that interest you and how you can tie in all those interests into doing something or entering a career path that you find absolutely rewarding. And I think the best way to do that is to talk to people. When I was at Columbia, before I settled on IRB work, I had, you know, they had encouraged us to do what's this thing that's called informational interviewing, where you reach out to, you know, you'd go on LinkedIn and Mm -hmm. reach out to people and ask for 15 minutes of their time just to talk to them. Basically what you're doing, Dr. Marn, for free, it's on your podcast, anyone can, but, you know, you do your <laughs> research, reach out, hope that they, hope that they respond, hope that they give you 15 minutes of their time yeah. and try to cram all your questions in those 15 minutes, you know, but as a student, what did I know? What did I know that I was interested yeah. in? I just, I was doing it because it was, it was recommended. But then mm-hmm. after the first few, I found that, you know, there is value here. I want to, you know. What are you, does that interest me? Do I want to spend time doing an internship in this and eventually getting a job in this? Yeah. And so that, I think that was really helpful for me. At Columbia, I did an IRB internship with a different institution, the New York State Psychiatric Institute. And that's where I solidified my desire to stay in this field. So when I graduated, then I just only looked for jobs in, in the IRB space. I'm so glad that Oname Eka, she was featured in episode 30, introduced us. So this is great, you know, obviously an expert in research studies and being on the forefront, which is part and parcel with what you do. But I want to do some lighthearted questions here, if you don't mind. Sure. Rapid fire, Dr. Mar questions. Are you ready? <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Marilyn, what's your favorite day of the week? Ooh, Thursday. Why is Thursday your favorite day of the week? 
it comes from growing up and we ate my favorite meal for dinner on Thursday. And so now Thursday has just become my favorite day. It's it's close to it's close to really? Friday, close to the yes. weekend. <laughs> you know it's coming in at the end, the end of the week. Got it. Exactly. Cats or dogs? Neither. Not, a, not into pets. N- not into pets. No. <laughs> <laughs> I can understand that sometimes. <laughs> one of your favorite books of all time. Oh, this is a good one. I would say Hooked. Actually, Hooked. By Nair Eyal. What type of book is that? It's a it's a book about. I gotta ask. Yeah, it's a book about how habit forming products are made, the psychology behind habit forming products. So social media is a habit forming product. Yeah. Yeah, and there are many like that. I found I found it really fascinating. It opened my mind and got me thinking a lot. Most influential person in your life to whom you are not related to. Huh, that's interesting. Actually, I would say my boss, Lori Denix. All right. Yeah. Um, what's the most beautiful place you've ever been? Mm. Colombia. The country? The country, yes. Favorite ice cream flavor? Ooh, butter pecan. Mm. How many hours of sleep do you need? 12, if possible. I don't. I never get it. I never get it. But <laughs> if you could ask God one question, what would it be? Why? And Just finally, a big why? I know, big why. I can understand <laughs> that one. And finally, can you say something about yourself that most people at your workplace would not know about you? My cough tickles. Your your cough cough. Your calf. Your your back. Your leg. Yes. Okay. Yes. That's that. Yeah, that I don't think most anybody would know that. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Marilyn. Thanks for answering my quick questions. I know you. You also do some things outside of work. That's very interesting with hair. Can you tell me a little bit yes. about that? Yes. Yes. So for the last eight years, I've run a hair blog called The Kink and I. The Kink. Yes. And I. What's the web address? Thekinkandi.com. That's the web address. And I. Yes. So how do you spell that out? T H E K I N as in November K and A N D I. As in the letter. The dot letter com. I. Yes. Dot Got com. it. Yes. And what is this blog post about or blog? Uh, yeah. So I I'm passionate about hair and hair care. So it's all about that. We do tutorials. We share. Uh, I run it with my best friend. And so we share our progress, hair progress. We are reading and doing research a lot about what's new in that space. And so we share a lot about that as well. And so we share on the blog and we also share on Instagram. Now, is it featured mainly for people of Nigerian descent? No. So it's featured mainly for Black women with our type of hair texture. Got it. How interesting. Well, that's, I think that's great. And so you, you have something that you're really interested in and passionate about outside of work. Exactly. Yes. That's awesome. Absolutely love it, how, yeah. how long has that blog been going on for now? For about eight years now. All right. All right. Yeah. Awesome. Well, listen, is, uh, is that one way that people can get, get a hold of you if they want to get a hold of you? Yeah, certainly. Um, Instagram, the king or Instagram? and I. Yes. The king and I, that's the handle. All and right. Awesome. Me, yeah, you can reach me there. Awesome. 
Well, listen, Marilyn, I am so happy we got to talk. Me too. You gave me a real clear sense of what the IRB does and how you kind of function in that role. So thank you so much for coming on this episode and on this podcast. Uh, thank you so much for having me. This is great work that you're doing. So well, thank I, you very much. We'd we'll like to keep it going for a long time. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> All right, everybody. That's our show today. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about today's guests or other past guests, just check out my website, healthcareerswithdrmar.com or hcwithdrmar.com. Of course, if you like what you heard on this podcast, then please go to my website, add your name and email to my email list. That way you can get the latest announcements and news as they arise. You can also find me on Instagram at drrichardmarn. That's Dr. Richard Marn. Thank you so much for listening and catch you on the next episode.